Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. Nine years have passed since seven-year-old Kyron Horman went missing after his elementary school science fair in Portland, Oregon. For years, police, Kyron's mother, Desiree Young, and the nation have grappled with what has become known as the largest, most expensive criminal investigation case in Oregon's history. Mystery swirled around the seven-year-old's disappearance. Children don't just vanish into thin air on a typical school day. And Kyron was a happy child who certainly would have never run away, at least according to his parents. He was well-behaved, described by his parents as a bit timid, scared to do things by himself, not the kind of child who ever caused trouble or would have dared to venture out into the unknown by himself. This was a crime story that had all the hallmark elements that captured nationwide interest. A missing sweet child, a family drama that seemed straight out of a daytime soap opera, and a stepmother who was suspected to be anything but the caring maternal figure she presented herself to be. Now, nearly a decade later, the media firestorm has halted. News vans and camera crews no longer camp outside Kyron's school or his parents' homes. The massive searches with volunteer crews of a thousand have dwindled. This is how many cases go. When the news of a missing child first breaks, the victim's face is plastered on newspaper covers. Distraught family members are interviewed, news correspondents comment on their theories, and on case developments. And the parents in town, at least for a time, hug their children just a little tighter at night. Reminded that right in their neighborhood, a mother's worst nightmare has happened. And that means it could happen to them. But life goes on. The pandemonium stops and the initial sting of the story fades. The former fear that Kyron's disappearance once caused the masses is now a hazy, sad memory instead of a current threat. A hush seems to have settled over the case for the past few years. According to the sheriff's office and Desiree herself, the case is still very much active, but the trail seems to have gone cold. Or has it? What keeps this case alive, even more than the hardworking police, is Desiree Young's lifelong pursuit to find her son and to solve once and for all the question that haunts her every waking moment. What on earth happened to her innocent little boy? And is there any chance, even the slightest remote chance, that he might be still alive living somewhere else. There's a lot of talk when it comes to this case about the wicked stepmother. It's what makes for a headline story. The salacious details of a case are what attract public attention. 
We know about Terry's bizarre actions. We know about these bizarre actions that are alleged to have happened. But what do they tell us about who she really is? Then on the other end of the spectrum, Chiron's mother Desiree is an example of the lengths a parent will go for their child. She's a fire that cannot be put out. On this episode, we'll explore the most recent developments in this case that have given Desiree hope, the toll Chiron's disappearance, and the dramatic investigation has taken on Chiron's family, and what the future might hold. Is there really any chance of still finding Chiron? Or has it come to the point that we're no longer looking for a child? We're now looking for a body. This is Dr. Phil, and you're listening to Into Thin Air, The Mysterious Disappearance of Chiron Horman. My Bessie Stormburst Low Top and Weekend Sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make the summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Local searches by thousands of volunteers and professional rescue teams have turned up nothing. I mean nothing in the endless years since the worst day of Desiree's life. The day her son Chiron disappeared without a trace from his elementary school. But Chiron's mother refuses to give up. Ever since her son went missing, Desiree has often bravely ventured into the vast green forest of Oregon herself, joining crews who literally leave no stone unturned looking for that little boy or some clue of where he might have gone and what may have happened to him. They're looking for him. They're looking for a shred of his clothing. They're looking for anything that might suggest a direction that he traveled or that he may have been taken, any clue, any physical evidence. By joining the search, Desiree knows she risks the unthinkable. 
I mean, it's a parent's worst nightmare, possibly finding her son's remains and knowing for certain that her child is dead. I mean, think about it. You go through the trauma and the shock of your child disappearing, the agonizing weeks, months, and years of worry and wondering how horrific would it be for you to move some leaves or move some branches or something that was stacked up and find your own child's body underneath. It's almost unthinkable, but yet she continues to put one foot in front of the other and look for what she both hopes and fears to find. She has helped fellow searchers explore seemingly endless forests and streams. Desiree has watched as a searcher finds a lone article of abandoned clothing or even a remote bone. It's a pit in your stomach that never leaves, not knowing if it's the bone of a wild animal or a piece of your missing son. And still, Desiree goes looking for physical signs of Chiron because not knowing where her son is and constantly wondering if he is dead or alive is even more of a daily torment. Desiree has to know and cannot bear the thought of living the rest of her life without knowing what has become of Chiron. Because as the title implies, he seemingly disappeared into thin air. One moment he was there, the next moment he was just gone. How can that happen? His disappearance was a hurricane that ravaged Desiree and her ex-husband Kane's life. The aftermath of their son's disappearance impacts them to this very day. Of course, if Desiree is the unstoppable heroine of this story, the infamous character is allegedly Terry. And in the court of public opinion, many believe she is guilty. In Desiree's mind, Terry is guilty. If not of murder, Desiree says, then definitely of Chiron's kidnapping. Now, while Desiree has spent the past years living a gut-wrenching mystery, she believes that Terry knows exactly what happened. She believes that Terry can unlock this mystery, that she knows where Chiron is, she knows what happened, that she knows the answer to every question that haunts her, Desiree, every minute of every day. It's understandable why Terry's a prime suspect in the eyes of the public and members of Chiron's family even to this day. We know she didn't do herself any favors in the wake of Chiron going missing. Terry slipped all too easily into the role of the lifetime movie villainous stepmom. Some armchair detectives have even referred to her as the wicked redhead of the Northwest. Her actions before, during, and after Chiron's disappearance showed a woman who seemed vengeful and selfish if you believed everything that was published, if you connected the dots that were put out there. We know, for example, that she's a cheater. We know that she is someone who is hell-bent on getting what she wants and has the kind of personality that many describe 
as someone that will knock down anyone who dares get in her path. These are opinions. Are they factual? We don't know. The media saw her as a monster hidden in plain sight in the Oregon suburbs. When you try to prove these opinions, when you try to put substance beneath them, while it looks bad, while some of her behaviors seem tone-deaf, insensitive, non-empathetic, we don't put people in jail for not being sensitive. We don't put people in jail for not being empathetic. We don't put people in jail for grieving in a different way than we expect. Back when she appeared on Dr. Phil in 2016, I felt like she tried to avoid my straightforward questions about her suspicious actions in the wake of her stepson going missing. In my opinion, her go-to move was to deflect blame from herself by accusing and speaking negatively of her former husband, Cain. But again, those are my opinions. I think they're good opinions because I've interviewed a lot of people. I've interviewed a lot of criminals. I'm trained in forensic psychology. But I'll let you make up your own mind. Because if you said to me, Dr. Phil, prove it. I don't have the proof. I have my intuition. I have my opinion. And you don't deprive people in America of their freedom based on opinion. So let me let you take a listen to what Terry had to say to me when she tried to explain why she took so long to publicly speak out about the case and the allegations against her. It's six years on now since he's disappeared. Tell me why it's taken this long for you to want to speak out and set the record straight and and clear your name about this because you say there are so many misperceptions. Why wait this long to try to correct those things? I haven't wanted to wait this long. I was advised from the beginning by law enforcement, by my husband at the time, by um, attorneys in the beginning. Uh, not to say anything. I was advised not to. Uh, I've always wanted to. I've, I've asked multiple times to, to speak out and have not been allowed. I'm really frustrated that it's been six years people telling you not to talk because people who have nothing to hide, hide nothing. And exactly. a little boy has been missing for six years. And this is the number one talk show in America. This is the number one place you can come and get in front of the most eyeballs across this country to raise awareness, beat the drum, and hold this little boy's face and picture up. And people tell you don't come and do that. That is bizarre to me. I thought it was bizarre then, and I think it's bizarre now. Think about this. If you are not only innocent, but you also miss the child, a child that you have been helping to raise by your description as your own, you would think you would do anything to clear your name and encourage people on any media platform you can get to help to find the real perpetrator. Now, what I mean by that is if you didn't do it, If you're not involved, you would rush and volunteer 
to be excluded. You would say, look, exclude me. Ask me whatever you need to do. Give me polygraphs. Take my DNA. Take my blood. Take my fingerprints. Do whatever you have to do to exclude me as rapidly as you can because I don't want you wasting resources fooling around suspecting me. I know I didn't do it. So whatever you need to do to exclude me so you don't spend 10% of your time pursuing me that you could spend pursuing the real perpetrator. Exclude me quickly and let's get on with finding the real person. So when somebody doesn't do that, that seems strange to me. A lot of you know that I work very closely with former FBI agent Jack Tremarco. God rest his soul, we lost him in the last year. And he told me one time that he had interviewed and polygraphed, and I don't recall the exact number, but it was like 1,500, 2,000 sets of parents of missing children. Some guilty, some innocent, and only one out of 2,000 failed to cooperate, failed to take a polygraph, failed to step up and do what you would expect a grieving, concerned parent to do. So it's very rare that the parent of a missing child doesn't take whatever steps necessary to exclude themselves. Statistically, it's very rare. Now, once you get Terry talking, it becomes clear that her go-to move is, as I said, in my opinion, is to deflect blame from herself by accusing and speaking negatively of others, whether it's Desiree, the police, her former husband, Cain. This is what she had to say about Cain and Desiree's accusations. I really don't have anything I can say about Cain other than I know that, that he's lying. He lied through his teeth in order for him to gain a house and to gain money. Desiree needs to get a grip and understand this is about finding Kyron, and she knows darn well by misrepresenting, by fabricating, and just for her hate in me alone, she needs to help get the focus back on him and finding him. In Terry's mind, she's the victim. The way she sees it, Desiree and Cain conspired against her to paint her as the bad guy. She didn't try to have her husband murdered. He made it up to get her house and child. She was justified in sexting another man because Cain cheated on her first. Desiree just hates her, so is letting her personal feelings take over. Hell will freeze over before Terry takes responsibility for anything she does. There are just certain people in this world, certain personality types that just have a problem with accountability. And it permeates every aspect of their life. They just have a problem stepping up and owning what they do in their life. You find this characteristic runs through a lot of personality disorders. You see it in antisocial personality disorder. You see it in borderline personality disorder. You see it in narcissistic personality disorder. So it's not specific to just one type of personality disorder. 
It's one of those things that underlies a sense of entitlement with people that just don't want to be held accountable. They're always in a victim role. They're never accountable. Nothing is their fault. They're always on the side of being the victim of circumstances, being the victim of someone else's ill intent, but they just don't ever own what they've done. Here, you have someone that a very short time after a child is missing is reportedly giving in to impulses and is sexting someone, not their husband, and obviously that's behavior that's very inappropriate to what would be expected in the situation. Now, this is inappropriate on several different levels, obviously. Number one, it's inappropriate to be doing that with someone not your mate. It's inappropriate to be doing that in a time frame when all of your emotional energy you would expect to be absorbed into the fear and dread associated with a child you say you've raised as your own being missing. You would be thinking that the person would be playing scenarios out in their head. Where could the child be? What could they be going through right now? Are they cold? Are they hungry? Are they being molested, tortured? Are they perhaps dead and lying in a ditch somewhere? You play all of these horrific scenarios out in your mind. That seems inconsistent with sexual arousal. And one would say, well, then maybe it's escapism. Maybe it's behavior where you say, is this a dissociative behavior where somebody, this is so painful that they dissociate from that, almost like a split personality, and run to something else, and that would explain that behavior. But that's not what you heard from her. You heard her justify this, well, he cheated on me first. You know, fully aware of what she was doing, just justifying it. So it's inappropriate at several different levels. And that's what I mean when I say she didn't do herself any favors in the court of public opinion when these things come out. Now, is everything that came out in the media about her true? I highly doubt it. It said that she attempted to hire a hitman to kill her husband. Is that true? It was alleged. It was not proved. If it's true, that's very damning information, and it was certainly talked about a lot. But if it was true, I mean, if there was a basis for it, if there was evidence for it, you would think that she would have been arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Never happened. So I, I have no doubt that some of the things that were alleged against her in the media were not true, but if just the things that she admitted to are true, They seem really inappropriate for someone that was truly grieving the disappearance and or loss of a child. Now, what we do know is that despite Terry allegedly being the last person to see the child alive, there was no physical evidence or any kind of trail ever solidly linking her to his disappearance. Even so, because of how she was portrayed in the media, 
And because of those things that she actually admitted to, Terry will likely wear an imaginary scarlet letter the rest of her life. She's known as the woman who allegedly wanted her husband and stepchild dead, despite her repeated and consistent claims of innocence, despite the fact that her life up to that point gave no indication, no clue of any criminal motivation or any criminal conduct. She was trained as a teacher. She chose to work with children. She aspired to be a superintendent. She aspired to be in a career that was devoted to the development of children. So there's just no easy answer in the real world, in real life cases. They don't get solved in 59 minutes and 50 seconds when the music track clicks in. That's what happens on TV. That's not what happens in real life. Many of those who passionately follow this case think that Terry is guilty. Both of Kyron's parents think that Terry is responsible for his disappearance. And yet, despite the mounting circumstantial evidence surrounding Terry and, of course, police suspicion, she has still never been formally charged with any kind of criminal behavior regarding his disappearance. Whether Terry was involved in Kyron's disappearance or is completely innocent, her life changed forever on that fateful day. In June of 2010, her life changed. And unless Kyron is found and or someone else is deemed responsible, a cloud of suspicion and whispers will follow her wherever she goes. She is clearly a social pariah. As the famous saying goes, Mother knows best. So is Desiree right? Is her maternal instinct correct? Is Terry walking free for a heinous crime, the abduction, and possibly the murder of her stepson? Despite tons of both public and police pressure, Terry has never once wavered from her statement that she is completely innocent and that she would never hurt Kyron. And while Terry may not be voted wife or mother of the year, of any year, her affair and other suspicious behaviors don't necessarily make her guilty. There are a lot of people guilty of infidelity who didn't kill anybody. For a long time, Desiree clung to the hope that police would charge Terry. She still does. Nearly a decade later, during the investigation, Terry seemingly raised enough red flags to sew a quilt. Desiree holds out hope because there is not a statute of limitations on the crimes she believes Terry is guilty of. There was the affair, the alleged murder-for-hire plot against Kane, and her seemingly cold and distant demeanor and actions the day of and following Kyra's disappearance. That all had to mean something, right? To this day, Desiree has a flicker of hope that someone, someday, somewhere will hear something or glean some new information from Terry or new evidence that finally proves her guilt and forces her to answer to the law. She doesn't know when, she doesn't know how, she doesn't know why. Maybe Terry will get intoxicated somewhere and loose lips sink ships. Maybe she'll say something somewhere someday that she shouldn't say and it will lead to finding out something that she doesn't want found out. 
Desiree doesn't know how it'll happen. She just hopes that it will. So let's talk about where Terry is today. On our last podcast, we detailed the dramatic divorce proceedings between Terry and Kyron's father, Kane. This wasn't just a marital split. Kane claims he feared for his life and wanted a restraining order against Terry. A Portland judge signed off on the divorce and order in December of 2013. Kane got to keep the house in Portland and got custody of their daughter, Kiara. The woman Kane had once welcomed into his son's life, the woman he had exchanged vows with and shared a bed with, was now the woman he believed responsible for his child's disappearance. Not only that, Cain believes to this day that Terry also wanted him dead. Cain may be free from Terry now, at least on paper, but his missing son and the former couple's daughter, Kiara, bind them together forever. Chiron is Kiara's half-brother. If Terry did harm him, then she hurt her own daughter's blood and deprived her of a sibling. Terry tried relocating to another small town near Portland to live with her parents and start with a clean slate. But the move did not help her lead a normal life. After finding Oregon unlivable due to the accusations and media frenzy surrounding the case, she packed up and moved down the coast to start again, to try and start a new life. DMV records show Terry relocated to Sacramento, California. She has also made multiple attempts to change her name. One of the new names she tried to adopt was Claire Sullivan, which is the name of the protagonist in the 1960s murder mystery novel called Call in the Night. It's somewhat eerie that Terry would try to choose this name for herself. In the book, Claire goes to Paris to look for her missing sister, then finds romance and adventure along the way. I find it a bit on the nose to change your name to a character that is, albeit fictionally, involved in a missing persons case. That seems a little exhibitionistic to me. There's something we talk about in deception detection called duping delight. It's where people kind of do things they think they get away with and they thumb their nose at you. They just can't quite keep themselves from rubbing your nose in it. Is that what's going on here? Who knows? It's also interesting to wonder if Terry related to this character because she fancies herself the glamorous heroine of her own life story forced to live a life on the lamb through no fault of her own. But despite her attempts, judges repeatedly denied her request to change her name, ruling that Terry changing her name was just not in the interest of the public. However, a new life has begun for Terry in California in some ways. She met a man, Jose de Jesus Vasquez Martinez. She married him in 2018 finally getting her wish for a new last name. She now goes by Terry Vasquez. Terry might live in the shadow of looming suspicion, but it's away from Oregon. Terry's ex-husband, Kane, still has custody of their young daughter, Kiara. 
Terry is not in contact with her. She may have gotten herself to a new town, but problems still seem to follow Terry. Or rather, she still seems to be causing herself problems. Since fleeing to California, seemingly to escape public scrutiny, Terry has had multiple disturbing run-ins with the law. In 2015, Terry was charged with stealing a former roommate's gun. When police apprehended her, the gun was on her. And yet after she faced a grand theft firearm charge, she was still ultimately found not guilty. Terry was also arrested for driving a stolen vehicle in 2016. No charges were ever filed against her due to prosecutors not finding enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Most shocking of all, in late 2016, Terry Horman faced domestic violence charges after her former boyfriend, Joseph Cristobal, accused her of threatening him with a knife. He was granted a two-year restraining order against Terry. Terry Horman's former boyfriend had this to say in his statement regarding the incident. I'm fearing for my life. I don't even know what she is capable of. She put a knife, a kitchen knife, to my face and threatened something is going to happen to me or my family if I spoke to police. Hearing about Terry's serious run-ins with the law following Kyron's disappearance did not surprise Desiree. She told one local NBC News outlet, I think her time is running out. I think she knows that. We're getting closer and closer to her, and I think that she, rightly so, should be scared. Desiree went on to say about her son's former stepmother, I am extremely concerned that someone else will be hurt by Terry Horman before she is put in jail. She needs to know that she is not above the law, and we need to hold her to that measure and expectation. When it comes to the law, Terry seems to have the nine lives of a cat. Let's take a stroll down memory lane of the other two major alleged crimes she was suspected of prior to these offenses. The murder-for-hire plot of her former husband, Kane, which resulted in him divorcing her and getting a restraining order against her, as well as, of course, her suspected but never proven involvement in her stepson's disappearance. Now, common sense says that if you have just been put under the microscope by law enforcement and public opinion regarding your stepson's disappearance, and you manage somehow to wiggle your way out of that situation without any charges, you would think, you would thank your lucky stars and try to clean up your act and keep your head down and stay off police radar. But that's obviously not the case with Terry. She seems to be acting without any concern for consequences whatsoever. Now ask yourself this. How many people in your life do you know that have been suspected of kidnapping, murder-for-hire plots, and have not one but two restraining orders against them by men who fear for their lives? I'll give you a minute. Count them up. I'm guessing it's a pretty short list. She is, at best, a statistical anomaly. 
You might think that's all to the story of Terry, but it's not. The alleged skeletons in this woman's closet just seem to keep piling up. In 2017, seven years after Kyron's disappearance, Terry was living in Roseburg, Oregon with her parents, trying to salvage what was left of her reputation. And police found themselves with yet another allegation of a murder for hire plot. Another one of Terry's boyfriends alleged that 30 years prior, Terry had wanted him dead and had put a plan into motion to get rid of him. According to Terry's former boyfriend, Sean Ray, his life-threatening incident occurred all the way back in 1990 when Terry was 20 years old and Sean was 18. Sean alleges that it was a typical day for the young couple. They were seated on the front lawn of Terry's family home in Roseburg. They had just sat down to eat when a strange man suddenly appeared. Sean claims he came out of the bushes. The ambush was terrifying for Sean. He says the man brandished a gun, but thankfully didn't fire any shots. According to Sean, Terry said, and he quotes, He's here for you. Now, things like that just didn't happen in their small town. Why would a man suddenly lunge out of the bushes and start making threats, waving a gun around? Now, sure, Terry and Sean didn't have a perfect relationship. She was known to be controlling and aggressive. But to have him murdered? The encounter left Sean deeply afraid of Terry. Needless to say, he broke up with her soon after he moved away and was relieved to get some distance. As we know, that day in 1990 wouldn't be the last time Terry would allegedly cause a man to feel uneasy. Decades later, when Kyron's investigation was underway, Sean stated that the sheriffs told him that a prison inmate confessed that he had been approached decades ago for a murder for hire. The person who hired him, the prisoner claimed, was none other than Terry Horman, and that Terry's intended target was Sean Ray. According to police, the jailhouse snitch's account of the 1990 ambush matched Sean's story. Once again, while further details of this case were not made public, charges were never made against Terry. And while it's not clear why this hired assassin didn't end up pulling the trigger, it's another alleged example of a lover who claims to have narrowly escaped Terry's alleged web of hitmen. And I do emphasize the words alleged and escaped. No shots were fired. She denied the allegations. She was not arrested, she was not charged, she was not tried, and she certainly was not convicted. As I've often said, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Now, Terry's got to be either one of the unluckiest women who ever lived, or as Desiree believes, she's a manipulator who has managed to keep pulling the wool over the eyes of the law. Terry's reckless behavior was apparent in the time period right after Kyron's disappearance. It was so selfish, so cringeworthy, that it was just straight-up tone-deaf and insensitive. And you know the things that I'm talking about. Going to the gym to work out the day her stepson went missing without a trace. With her husband at home despondent. 
She was sexting with another man. She allegedly wanted her husband Kane dead. The list goes on and on with her alleged strange and cold behavior. Some of it she admits to, some of it she doesn't. When you take a step back and look at all of Terry's alleged crimes, and then you parse out those things that she admitted to, and you trace this all the way back to her youth, does it tell you how she operates? Does it tell you the kind of person she is? I can't sit here and tell you that she's a kidnapper. I can't tell you that she's a murderer. I can't tell you that she conspired to do either of those things. But if I take away the allegations and just look at the things that she admits to, however reluctantly, she certainly seems to have a problem with impulse control and emotional stability. And if the murder for hire and domestic violence allegations are true, then Terry is the type of person who might just see people as disposable. If she sees someone as a problem, she might just see violence as the answer. Is it that much of a leap to assume someone capable of these alleged acts would also be capable of kidnapping a child, perhaps even murdering a child? Now, I have met Terry. I've talked to Terry, interviewed Terry. I've asked her questions. I've observed her behavior, listened to her answers. But I've done no formal evaluation of her. I've certainly not treated her to gain any insight into her personality across time, and it would be irresponsible and unethical of me to render a diagnosis of her here. I can tell you what I do know about her is unsettling. There's no disputing this woman has a history of deceit. She's been caught in numerous lies. She seems to look out for herself. She seems to put herself as a number one priority. She doesn't seem to have the ability to sustain stable, long-term relationships. When things go south in one place, she can always leave town and restart. If these accusations are true, she's the type of person who puts herself and her needs before others, even if that means it puts others in danger. And of course, one of the strangest things about this case is that this woman is a mother herself. Because in addition to her stepson, Chiron, Terry has two other children, Kiara, the daughter she shares with Cain, and an older son from another marriage. And her actions just don't align with someone who puts her children first. Everything she has done seems to have pushed them further away. Because of her alleged murder-for-hire plot, Terry has lost custody of Kiara in her divorce. With regard to her former boyfriend, that she allegedly put a knife to his face, she also threatened his family. If that's true, it suggests that if you get on Terry's wrong side, she won't just come after or threaten you, she may also target those you love. When you hear something like that, of course, it harkens back to Chiron's case. It was alleged that Terry resented Chiron. She resented Cain. Their marriage was going south. Nothing could have hurt Cain more than making something terrible happen to his child. As Desiree saw it, Cain's cheating could have been a motive for Terry to try to punish him in the cruelest way possible. I said Terry's relationship with the law was like the old superstition about the cat. Even in that superstition, the cat only has nine lives. 
So you have to wonder if Terry's luck with the law will ever run out. As Desiree always says, it's just going to take one small slip-up on her part. And this house of cards can come tumbling down. If Terry does know something, or if she did hurt Kyron, does she feel remorse or guilt? It does not appear so. But then, of course, that could be because she has nothing to feel guilty about. She says she feels terrible about it. If these recent allegations are valid, then she may be as volatile as ever. But then again, she's been through the ringer. She has been convicted in the court of public opinion, and I know that can change a person. Maybe it's really affected her and caused instability, caused impulsiveness, caused a low frustration tolerance. None of us can say for certain that she's guilty in the case of Kyron Horman, but she sure made it impossible for the public to believe her. The alleged criminal acts only serve to heighten public suspicion and make Desiree even more certain than ever that she intentionally plotted to cause Kyron harm. As for Cain, the now ex-husband of both Desiree and Terry, well, he still lives in Oregon, where he is raising Kiara. For the past eight years, he has organized Kyron's Car Show, a charity event that raises money for Kyron Horman Foundation which spreads awareness for Kyron and other missing children. Hundreds gathered at the most recent car show event this past August. Kane has stated that he believes his son is very much alive. He doesn't hope, he says he believes. He's certain. He has to believe that Kyron is alive in order to push forward. In this interview in 2015, Kane spoke out about how he deals with believing his ex-wife Terry was involved in his son's case. In a way, and it was a very high price, Kyron's disappearance brought Desiree and Kane closer together. Back when they sat down for an interview with me, I urged them to put their differences aside in the face of this tragedy that happened to both of them. They both believed they were deeply betrayed by the woman Kane married. They understand each other's pain. They both miss their son terribly and share each other's crippling worry and fear over what might have happened to the boy. Both Desiree and Kane regularly speak to detectives, hoping that one day the code will be cracked and it will lead them to their missing son. This is a sad case that started with a missing child but became a circus of intrigue because of Kane and Terry's imploding marriage and Terry's alleged wild and suspicious antics. What really matters and all that is left now that the dust is settled is that a child is still missing. Still missing after all these years and that his parents miss him every single day. One of the most unnatural things in this life is for a parent to bury their child. There is a cycle of life. Nobody's getting out of this alive. We're all born, we live our lives, and then in the cycle of life, we pass on. Our children are supposed to bury us, not the other way around. It's out of sync. It doesn't fit our psyche. It doesn't make sense to our minds or our hearts. 
it turns everything upside down. When you deal with the shock and the unnatural circumstance of burying your child rather than them burying you, it's a shock to your system. It's a shock to your psyche. But add to that that the child is lost, but you don't know what happened to them. You're robbed of the natural grief process. You're robbed of the peace that you can find from getting closure about your emotions and finding a place to put this. It's replaced with fear, depression, the feeling that you've failed to protect your child. This can absolutely dominate your life and rob you of so many things in your life that you would ordinarily richly deserve and richly experience. It can rob existing, surviving children of their complete emotionally available parent because they only get part of you, because part of you has been taken away by this unresolved loss of the missing child. It's called ambiguous loss. There's no closure. The pain and the confusion can last a lifetime. It just goes against the human need for clarity, the human need for knowing so you don't create monsters in your mind. And this can often cause prolonged grief. And grief can turn into depression. And then depression can turn into paralysis in your life. What this family really needs to do is find a way to strike a balance of keeping hope alive that Chiron will be found while simultaneously grieving his absence, not his death, but his absence. And the best way to do that is to compartmentalize their devotion to finding him. I don't want them to forget about him. I don't want them to stop looking, stop hoping, stop trying to bring justice to whoever is responsible for what happened to him. But when I say compartmentalize, I mean just that. I mean, maybe you say, I'm going to work on this an afternoon a week or two hours a day, three days a week. And the rest of the time, I'm going to give myself permission to say, I cannot think about that right now. I've got other children to deal with. I have a relationship to deal with. I have a life to deal with. And I'm not going to feel guilty that I'm not thinking about it every waking moment because I'm going to assign myself times and maybe a place in the house where we keep records and maps and everything that go into the investigation. That's when I call the police department. That's when I talk to the investigators. That's when I review any new information. I'm going to work on it during these designated times in a designated place, and the rest of the time, I give myself permission to not feel guilty that I have abandoned or betrayed the child or his memory. You just can't get stuck. The reality is you may never get the answers that you long for. It could be that the child is lost forever and you will never get the answers you're looking for. And if that's true, destroying two lives, three lives, four lives doesn't make it better. It only makes it worse. 
It's a balance that's hard to find, and it really requires you giving yourself permission and thinking through the fact that you're never going to forget and that it's not a betrayal to find joy in your life. The shockwaves of this are still felt by this family today. Desiree has never given up hope. She is the child's mother. She has in the past put blame unfairly on herself, saying she should have been there with him at the science fair instead of Terry. If she had had custody of Kyron, if she had been there, but playing the what-if game doesn't change reality. What could have happened did. And if anyone has the ability to foresee that kind of thing, they would be king of the world. It's narcissistic to think that you have the ability to foresee these things and be all things to all people. You simply can't do that, and you can't do that to yourself. It certainly is not Desiree's fault. That just adds to the guilt and paralysis of the family. But Desiree is driven. And during a recent interview, she brought up an interesting point. She claimed that despite law enforcement having probable cause, they ultimately decided not to arrest Terry. She referred to the infamous Casey Anthony case as a reason for what she believes is a delay in arresting Terry. Back in 2011, prosecutors charged Casey Anthony before her daughter Kaylee Anthony's body had been found. The evidence law enforcement had against Casey was overwhelming, but she was ultimately acquitted, and Desiree believes that the outcome of that trial set a new precedent for other missing children cases. By the time the trial came around, the jury felt they could not officially determine who actually killed the little girl. And with that, Casey Anthony, the woman who at the time was known as the most hated woman in America, walked free. Without a body and no physical evidence, there's not enough to hold Terry. Questionable life decisions and a mother's gut reaction are just not enough to indict. And I have to say, law enforcement is probably right. Going after a murder conviction without a body is possible, but it's also very risky. There are other famous cases in the media where body discovery spurred legal action. Lacey Peterson's disappearance. While her husband Scott Peterson's suspicious behavior and actions were causing mounting evidence, it was not until her corpse washed ashore that they apprehended and arrested Scott Peterson. There are too many other cases to count of missing children with cases that are near impossible to prove without the discovery of a body or a perpetrator's confession. Take, for example, the famous case of Etan Patsy, a six-year-old little boy from New York City who was abducted on his way to his school bus in 1979. It became known as one of the most mysterious unsolved missing child cases in the city's history. There were no clues. Like this case, the child appeared to have vanished into thin air. For more than 30 years, Etan's parents never stopped trying to find out what happened to their son, just like Desiree. After decades of tips and leads that went nowhere, their son's murder was only solved when his killer 
who at the time was a local corner store employee, confessed to brutally strangling him. Even with a confession, investigators have still never been able to locate Etan's body. Of course, there is still the possibility and hope that Kyron could be alive. While the odds seem to decrease with every passing year, Desiree's faith is kept alive when she hears other miracle stories of missing children that are ultimately safely returned home. Is Kyron still out there? Did he wander off? Did someone have their eye on the shy, good-natured seven-year-old boy and one day they decided to strike? There are other theories besides Terry. There are, of course, cases of children and adults alike that go missing for years, are held in dire circumstances against their will, and are one day found. I interviewed Michelle Knight, one of the three young women held captive by Ariel Castro in a derelict house in Cleveland. When the women finally escaped, it was a story that shocked America. They were missing for almost 11 years. And almost everyone thought the girls were dead. For the world and for the families of these girls to learn that they were not only alive, but have been kept prisoners by a monster in a house of horrors for more than 10 years reinforced the idea that when someone is missing, you just can't know for sure what's happened. While you want to prepare the loved ones of those missing for the very worst that could possibly happen, there is always hope. Investigators do not comment publicly on this case because it is an active investigation. However, Desiree says that the case has been very active in the past two years. On June 4, 2019, nine years after her seven-year-old son vanished, Desiree held a press conference at a local fire and rescue station in Portland, Oregon, right near Kyron's Elementary School. She stood solemnly at the podium with her new husband, Medford County Police Detective Tony Young at her side. Posters of smiling photos of Kyron surrounded her. During her statement, and as she fielded questions from reporters, Desiree wiped away tears when her emotions overcame her. One of the most revealing pieces of information that Desiree disclosed during her interview was that the search area for Kyron has now been limited to 100 acres. Does that mean police have some information that helped them narrow down a search area? Desiree also revealed during the press conference that she would soon release a book that she co-wrote with New York Times best-selling author Rebecca Morris titled Love You Forever, The Search for Kyron Horman. The title comes from the well-known saying Desiree had with Kyron based on their favorite children's book, Love You Forever, Like You For Always, as long as you're living, my baby, you'll be. Once published, Desiree says the proceeds from the book will go to missing children, nonprofit organizations of her choice. She says the book will feature a new inside perspective about her unique experience with the past nine years and what they have done to her and her family. The book will contain excerpts of Desiree's journal entries from that time and since, as well as the story of how, in the process of her pain, she transformed from a mother to a missing child advocate. She has spoken at events like National Missing Children's Day, 
speaking about her son, but also lending support to others in her position. Desiree will not let this case go cold without a fight. During a press release, Desiree also claimed that she had tried every possible way to communicate with Terry. She said she would even be open to receiving an anonymous letter from Terry that can't be traced if it would only help lead to the discovery of her son. This isn't about getting revenge on the woman Desiree believes is culpable. Terry's alleged guilt takes a back seat in Desiree's mind. She just wants to find her son. Terry now refuses to cooperate with law enforcement or anyone who is associated with trying to solve Kyron's disappearance. Desiree's powerful emotional closing during the press conference is a plea to keep her son's case and memory alive. Wherever Desiree goes, she wears her circular pin with a photo of Kyron's face. When she finds herself striking up a conversation with a stranger, she says they often tell her how much they were affected by the story of the sweet little boy in glasses who went missing. Sometimes people ask who he is because the story was now so long ago. No matter where Desiree is, whenever she gets the chance, she tells him about her little boy, that he is still out there and he needs to be found. At her home in Medford, Oregon, Desiree has kept Kyron's room a sacred place. The room is painted a soothing pastel blue and the walls are covered with decor that say positive messages like love. The bed is perfectly made as though it's ready for Kyron to come home and sleep in it at any moment. But the most prominent feature of the room is all the photos of Kyron that cover the walls and even hang like a banner above the bed. Photos show the brief seven years that Desiree got to have with her son. She said to a reporter that she made this room because she, quote, wanted a place I could smile again and not just have tears. If Kyron is alive today, he's 17 years old. He's supposed to be a senior in high school. If he were here, maybe he would be on a sports team. Maybe he'd be thinking about prom, where he might want to go to college, about the promising future that lies ahead. Instead, on Desiree's front lawn is Kyron's missing poster. On the left is a photo of his seven-year-old face, grinning out at the world from the day of his disappearance. He's a child frozen in time without a care in the world, completely unaware that in moments his life would be forever changed. On the right is an age-progress photo that shows Kyron at age 14. His family would do anything for that photo of what Kyron might look like as a teen to become a reality, to once again be able to see him in person. Desiree says she will not ever remove this sign unless and until her son is found. It's a symbol of the only thing Desiree wants out of life, the safe return of her little boy. The caption on the sign could be Kyron's words. The sign reads, pleadingly, Help bring me home. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Phil.